Let's uh, look in the book of Philippians today, if we could. I want to invite you to go ahead and turn there. We are two weeks into a six-week series on the book of Philippians. As you're turning to Philippians chapter 1, let me go ahead and take what um, Southern Baptists at the annual meeting call a point of personal privilege. I... uh, Eighteen years ago, uh, my wife Laura was willing to say I do when it came to her time, and so we're 18 years into having an anniversary today, so I just want to say thank you for my wife, one of the greatest blessings in my life, so uh, I appreciate her putting up with me for so long. So um, Philippians chapter 1, we're going to come to verse 12 today, and we're going to start and just dive right into the passage. So I want to invite you to come uh, to verse 12 there. We'll be reading through verse 26. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, Philippians 1, verse 12, he says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the ability to declare just that you are holy and that you are good and that you're mighty. And so, Father, today we thank you that not only are you holy and great and mighty, but that you are uh, merciful and gracious and tender with your children. And so, Lord, not only as a whole, as a church today, but for each one of us individually, will you help us to receive your word, uh, to receive the truth that is there? Uh, Lord, would you guide us towards the hope, uh, the challenge, the encouragement that you would give? Will you help us to hear Jesus' words in our heart this morning? And it's in his name that we ask this. Amen. Nine years ago, my family was at the coast, and we were uh, having one last day at the beach before we went home. Uh, Any of you who have got small children know that sometimes you've got that, can't we go out one last time uh, morning before you pack up the car and you go. And so as my memory serves me, that's what we were doing. We only had two children at that point. 
Uh, our oldest two were preschoolers at that moment. And as we got ready to go out into the water, I can remember, remember holding each of them in my arms and getting ready to go out into the waves to just be in there one, you know, one last time. My, my kids couldn't swim yet, and I didn't want to get deep out enough where I had to swim, but we were just going to go a little ways into the water and let the waves kind of lap against us a little bit. And so we were heading out there, and all of a sudden, one of my children said something about, but what if there's a jellyfish? A little nervous there might be a jellyfish out there. And I said, well, I can tell you this, you know, at that point I had lived something like 33 years or something like that. And so in the 33 years that daddy has been alive, he has never been stung by a jellyfish. But nevertheless, let's pray and ask the Lord for his help as we get ready to go out into the water. And so I, I bowed my head with my kids in my arms and I said something along these lines. I said, Lord, we just pray that as we go out into the water that there wouldn't be any jellyfish in the water and, uh, and that we wouldn't get stung by any jellyfish. But Lord, if somebody has to get stung by a jellyfish, please let it be daddy and not, you know, either one of the children and, uh, and, and we just, you know, asked that that could be the case. In Jesus' name, amen. And so we began to go out into the water. Sure enough, we got about waist deep when all of a sudden I felt something against my right foot. And uh, I had never experienced the pain of a jellyfish sting before, but I started to experience that. And I kicked it off of my foot and kicked it gracefully into my left foot where it stung me again. <laughs> And so with two jellyfish bites or stings, I came back to the shore with my kids in my arms and I placed them down. And thankfully that pain wasn't quite as bad as I thought it might be, though it was more significant than a bee sting. And uh, with swollen feet, I placed my kids on the ground and I thought, I'm sure I could have worded that prayer better. Maybe the better, anyway, you, you wonder those times, was, was my problem, my wording of my prayer, or was it ultimately uh, the Lord said, well, nine years from now, you're going to be standing in front of church and need an illustration. And so uh, let's go ahead and take that. You know, I'd like to speak today on the question or really the topic, is the problem a part of his plan? And I would say to you from the words of the Apostle Paul this morning recorded in the passage that we, we read today that I believe the problem is part of his plan often. Uh, that for us, sometimes negative experiences that we go through are not a point in our life where we are absent from the presence of the Lord or somehow the Lord has not you know, helped us as much as he normally does, but that his plan often is leading us through not only the mountaintops, but the valleys. And I'd like to look as we come to this passage today, I believe this is the very thing that the Apostle Paul is saying to the church in Philippi as he comes out of the passage where we looked last week that he who began a good work in you, the Lord Jesus, will be faithful to bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, that in all of this, Jesus is uh, providing the hope and the means by which we can continue moving through life. And coming off of that hope, as the scripture often does, we now come to a place to say, and here's how we need to apply that because of a challenge or a, a circumstance that we walk through. And so the apostle Paul, after giving a passage of hope, still gives a passage of hope, but he does so speaking into the circumstances where he finds himself. And so we've got four things this morning. Let me go ahead and dive right into the first one. And it's this, sometimes our difficulty is exactly God's plan. Sometimes our difficulty is exactly God's plan. 
Steve Dorner, who was uh, one of the early uh, people, programmers who arranged email in the mid-90s and late-90s when some of us in this room uh, got into email first being an option, back when email meant da-da-da-da-da-da, you know what I'm talking about. Students, it was a great time. You missed it. I'm sorry. But for us, email was as exciting as it got, you know, at that point in the internet. But Steve Dorner was one of those folks who helped uh, arrange and, and program email for people. And so during the late 90s, the Eudora email system was responsible for about 18 million people's email. Now, Steve started to feel uh, the pinch of what it was like when 18 million people sometimes weren't able to access uh, what they wanted to or they couldn't, it didn't get it to work quite like what they wanted. And he said that sometimes it felt like 18 million people knew everything that was wrong with what he had done and they were, they were upset about the work that he had done. But as he went on, he realized that in the world of tech support, often the answer is not whatever the programmer has done, it is something that the user is doing. That's why every time you and I call tech support, the first question they ask is, is it plugged in? And so the question for us often is, what 10 things could we possibly have done wrong instead of where does the fault lie with the person who has designed it all? You know, likewise for us, we distinguish today that Paul is not speaking about circumstances that he created with his own bad choices or his own, you know, poor actions. We oftentimes in our life have to face what it means for us to, to have you know, poor choices, wrong choices, uh, whether it's sin, whether it's just a lack of wisdom, that we face the consequences for things that we haven't chosen uh, well. And so Paul is not speaking about those circumstances today. He is speaking about the things in which the Lord leads us, the circumstances where we find ourselves that we say, you know, Lord, even, even when I'm not to blame, why does it seem that I'm walking through something that's challenging? My, uh, as I was growing up, one of the things that I always marveled at was that uh, I was sort of of that, that belief as a kid that, you know, at some point you must grow out of sin and bad decisions because to me it sure seemed like my parents never made a wrong decision uh, or a bad move. My, my dad particularly was uh, an airline pilot and he just seemed to always calculate and get everything just right. There are very few circumstances as a kid where I realized uh, that my father had, you know, made a poor choice. Maybe when he was doing something around the house and he had done it wrong and it ended up, you know, causing him maybe not only, you know, uh, some, some extra time, but even pain with how it, it worked out. I can remember my mother one time saying to me a phrase that she probably had heard from somebody else, but as she pulled me aside one day as a child, she said, you know, Jonathan, there's two things your father can't stand, pain and ignorance, especially when his ignorance is causing his pain. <laughs> you know, for each one of us, most of the time when we walk through pain, it's because of our ignorance. It's because of our poor choices. It's because of our bad decisions. And so sometimes we face it where we have no reason to question the Lord when we walk through something tough because the fingers should point back at us to say, no, this is actually the fruit of a decision that you've made or a poor choice that you made. But Paul is speaking today about a circumstance in which he, through no fault of his own, other than being faithful in gospel ministry, has found himself in prison that he is there more than likely in Rome. We see clues to that throughout the letter. Uh, one of the highest of those being as he talks about the Praetorian Guard uh, here in the coming verses. But he finds himself in prison. 
And the point that he's going to make is not that God is at work in his life despite the pain. But the point that I believe he's going to make as the text reads on is that sometimes our difficulty is exactly God's plan. That the pain is is part of where the Lord is leading. The pain and the plan and the means by which God is working are all one. Verse 12, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. What if the only way that God could accomplish the purpose that he desires is through your or my pain, through difficulty, through tough circumstances? What if the best way, or at least his chosen way, to accomplish things that we can't see otherwise how they would happen was difficulty that you and I would have to walk through? The Apostle Paul makes the point that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, that there are people who would not have known the gospel unless I was here in prison. Not only are they people, but they are the secret service for the Roman Empire. They are important people with a lot of connections. There is never someone who's more important than anybody else to the Lord Jesus, but we do see that strategically, in this sense, there's going to be a lot of points of contact from the imperial guard, and otherwise there would be no opportunity for them to hear the gospel unless they'd heard in this way. So Paul, in prison, says, I want you to know that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's become known throughout the whole guard And most of the brothers, verse 14, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That when Paul was no longer available, there was a void. And sometimes one of the things that God works through the most is a void, where now someone else has to step into the space that's left behind. And so those who perhaps were not speaking before, those who were not confident before, those who did not say, well, it looks like it's going to have to be me to be faithful at this point, they're stepping into that role and they're doing just that. And so sometimes our difficulty is exactly God's plan, that God works in that in a way uh, that is uniquely mighty and opportunities that exist in difficult circumstances that don't exist otherwise. The second thing I would say this morning that's closely related to that and the first one is that God can even bring good out of personal hurt. God can even bring good out of personal hurt. It would be enough if all the Apostle Paul had to speak against was to say, you know what, the food in this prison is horrible and it's diseased and I never know when my next meal is coming from. He could say, you know, this place is violent and there are people who seek to do harm to me here. Or he could say, you know, this place is, you know, the the health conditions are awful. He could have listed off any number of difficulties to just say, you know, the prison is a really tough place, but thankfully everybody at home still loves me. He doesn't do that. Even the geographic hurt of being in prison, the physical hurt of whatever pain and beatings he's had to endure, all of that is not the only thing that Paul has faced. He's faced personal difficulty as well. If you were to ever see a documentary about a giraffe being born, it's a very interesting process, and it makes you thankful not to be a giraffe. I don't know if you've experienced that yet, to be thankful you're not a giraffe, but here goes, just in case you haven't. 
Giraffes are born in, in such a way that is, is really unique to where as they enter into the world, their first experience in the world is a 10-foot fall onto their back. And as they are there trying to figure out where in the world they are and what in the world that means and, you know, sort of just get their wits about them, one of the things they start to do is just to look around and examine things. And what's interesting is that the mother who has just birthed that calf goes up to that giraffe and stands over it. And it seems right at first that she is there to protect the giraffe, but she starts to do something. She starts to kick that giraffe. And I'm not talking just barely nudge. I'm talking about kick to where that giraffe might roll a time or two before he comes to his senses again. She begins to kick that giraffe until he gets up on all fours on those wobbly legs. In the first service, I said both his legs, and they started to laugh at me because they knew how many legs giraffes have. Until he could stand on his own four feet, four hooves. And the giraffe slowly stands up, and with these wobbly legs, he finally experiences what it's like to stand up for the first time. And then, interestingly enough, the mother comes along again, and she does something that we might not expect or think is really in the character of a mother. She kicks the legs out from under the giraffe, and he falls back down again. And the process is repeated several times until not only does that giraffe know how to stand, but it knows how to get back up quickly because the mother understands that there are lions and there are other threats around them that if they are not able uh, to get and to move quickly that that calf would be in danger. You ever have those experiences where it seems like right after you got out of one thing, there's, there's experience ready to kick you, you know, right over for a couple loops, right on the heels of it? Paul is in a Philippian prison, uh, excuse me, a Roman prison right into the Philippians. And he's no doubt facing very, you and I probably can't really imagine how awful being in a prison in that time of the world was, how life-threatening it was just to be in the space that they were keeping prisoners. But Paul in that is not only saying that he's in prison, but he begins to speak about what is happening to him personally, about the kicking he's receiving while he's down. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And so Paul, in the midst of being imprisoned for his faith, finds out through some means that there are those who are preaching the gospel, their, their ministry in some way is, is going about in such a way to not only preach the gospel, but to run him down while they're doing that. That they're seeking to climb over him uh, to get to wherever they're trying to go. Perhaps that's to bring in a bigger following. Perhaps that's some personal thing that they don't like about Paul. Perhaps something that, that's something that they notice that they feel they can be critical to him about. But through some way, there are those who should be allies to Paul who are now trying to do whatever they can uh, to hurt his reputation while he is in prison, while he's there. And so Paul hears about this. Paul's in prison, his life is at risk, and he recognizes that there are some who are preaching even Christ from envy and rivalry, and he goes on to say this phrase, they are thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. There are those who could even use Jesus as a way to kick a man while he's down. You could almost take the pain and the starvation and the awful conditions if everyone loved you and said great things about you. But what's it like whenever you face difficult circumstances, not only physically, but then Paul faces them personally? 
You know, ministry is a vulnerable thing. Life is a vulnerable thing. You know, for any one of us who are perhaps at a job, at a school, whatever it might be, that that in life we recognize that there's plenty of things that people could come up with to be critical about any one of us. I know as far as standing here today, all of you would have reason at lunch to say, I don't know why in the world Jonathan talks this way or says this word that way or does this or does, and I'm just, you know, vulnerable that way. For Pastor Brandon, Pastor Parker, for any of the rest of us, it's like that as well. You know, for any of you and your job and your, your family and your school, whatever, there'd be people who if they wanted to criticize you, they could. Abraham Lincoln once said, if you look for the wrong in someone, you'll always find it. All of us have it. And so for those who were seeking to run down the Apostle Paul, they were doing just that. Paul doesn't just recognize who they are, and it's important we don't miss. He says this in verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The latter. Lord, help us to remember the latter. Help us to focus on the right people. I was a a high school graduate in 1999, which I think must be one of the coolest years to have graduated school, to be able to say, I'm the class of 99. But they even released this song during that year to give advice to the graduates who were graduating that year. And I remember as it went through, there was one of the lines in that song that said, don't focus on the lines or the things that people say that are negative towards you. Focus only on those who say good things about you. And if you figure out how to do this, let me know how. We often, if we're not careful, focus in on the minority of what causes us pain instead of a a field of blessings, a realm of being able to say, you know what, there's folks who love me and I'm going to focus on them, or there's folks who appreciate this, or there's this good experience in my life, good circumstance. If we're not careful, we focus on the wrong. And that's a problem that goes all the way back to the fall. Adam and Eve in the garden had a multitude of right choices, and only one that was given to them that they were not to do. And it seems to be from the nature of the text that it wasn't long before they said, you know what, I just can't get this one thing out of my mind. I've got to go that way. Even with the words of, uh, of Satan through the serpent in their ears, that only pulled them that way so quickly because of something that was already taking place temptation-wise in their heart. And so the fall came in. Ultimately, a piece of that was them saying, you know what, I'm not okay with all the right choices. I'm just so concerned with what that one wrong choice is. You know, for us in our life, in any number of different ways, if we're not careful, we can place our focus in the wrong area. I'm so concerned about the one or two people who really don't like me that I can't remember the 98 people that do. I'm so focused on what I can't seem to do right, and I'm focused only on this wrong that I can't see the ways that God's continuing to move me along and to bring me in this way. We could talk about a number of ways that shows itself, but Paul recognizes not only are there those who are seeking to afflict him, but there are those who love him. And as he ends that paragraph, he says this in verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. I'm okay if these guys are trying to go after me because at the end of the day, even in what they're seeking to do for evil, remember Joseph's words to his brothers in the book of Genesis, God's intended for good. And so in all of that, Jesus is proclaimed and there's fruit that's being done. Aren't you glad that God uses imperfect people? Because we're all imperfect people. 
every single one of us. And so even in the difficult parts of life, the things that perhaps these guys think they're doing exactly the right thing, someday they're going to realize their error. But in the meantime, Jesus is still big enough to be able to work. And you know what? As long as that's what's, being, that's what's going on, as long as it ultimately points to Jesus, then it doesn't matter about the rest of us. Some of you know that Pastor Brandon and I share a, an affinity for uh, all things J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and those kind of things. There was a cartoon that each of us got to see in our childhood that was The Hobbit uh, done by Rankin Bass, those people who put together Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and other you know, holiday specials. But they did a cartoon about the story of Tolkien's Hobbit who goes off to fight a dragon and to seek to, to do a lot of other heroic things. But as he's coming back home, he's walking with the wizard Gandalf, and he's just looking forward to being back at his fireplace and at his chair and, you know, in the quiet world where he came from and saying goodbye to adventures. And in the midst of this conversation with the wizard Gandalf, Gandalf says to him, you know, Bilbo Baggins, I'm very fond of you, but you need not forget that you are only a very little person after all. Bilbo Baggins says a great line. He says, thank goodness. You and I are only very small in the grand scheme of things. Thank goodness. Our hope ultimately, the only lasting thing, is what's done for Jesus and ultimately what points back to him. In the midst of not only physical pain but personal hurt, Paul recognizes if the end of that is Jesus' name being made great and people who need rescue from punishment through the grace of Jesus, if that's being accomplished, then that's what's most important. May the same be said for us. And so Paul, number three, would go on to still strike the same vein and just to ultimately say that pain is part of the process. Not only part of the process, but part of our purpose. Pain is part of our process and purpose. You say, well, I don't know if I can really get excited about that. Well, I get it. But it's part of our process and it's part of our purpose. And when we recognize that, it's easier to walk through life seeing that Jesus is not only Lord on the sunny days on the mountaintop, but he is Lord and he is with us on the rainy days in the valley. And so he has not simply left us when things are not going well. Jesus is with us even in the difficulty that we walk through. This is what Paul says in verse 19. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul's speaking even about Trinitarian mystery even in that moment that Jesus and the Spirit working together in my life and in my heart, he says, this will work out for my deliverance, or some of your English translations may say, my salvation. And so the question then becomes, is Paul talking about deliverance from prison, or is he using that word to mean something spiritual and saving? It seems from the context clues that we have here in this passage, I, I tend to lean more on the side that while Paul perhaps is speaking about deliverance from prison, he's speaking about more than that. That all of this process of pain that he's going through, that the spirit of Jesus Christ and the prayers of the saints offered up for him, that this help will turn out for his salvation, his saving, his deliverance. That it's all a part of the process. The Apostle Paul could look back and say, well, you know what? I came to faith in the Lord whenever I met Jesus on that Damascus road. 
And as I had a, 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 an encounter with him and believed in him, I was saved. If he was a good Baptist, that's what he'd say, and he wouldn't be wrong. But you know, sometimes if we're not careful, what we can miss is not only were we saved at a point in time where we trusted in Jesus Christ, we are being saved, and one day we will fully be saved. First Peter chapter 1 says this, talking about us, or, or talking about believers, entrance into heaven. He says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You and I have been saved when we've trusted in Christ. We are being saved all throughout these moments, and there's some day where we'll be fully saved and fully rescued from everything. Salvation's not only a backwards point in time, it's a process that the Lord is accomplishing in each one of our hearts and lives. We can have long discussions about sanctification and salvation and all those things. It's all connected together. This is all part of the process, the deliverance that each of us need. While you've got a marker perhaps in Philippians chapter 1, I'd invite you to flip backwards if you like to the Psalms as we also balancing this study with teaching that is not only contained in the New Testament, but echoed in the Old Testament as well. When we come to a psalm of the sons of Korah, who are best remembered for being rebellious against Moses and his leadership, but more than likely later descendants of Korah, write two psalms, 42 and 43, that some believe ultimately to be one uh, psalm that was later taken into two. But I'd like to le uh, read just a few verses from Psalm 42 beginning with verse 5. The writer says this, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You know, the Psalms are very genuine in their writing. Some of them are so genuine that you wonder, how in the world was the nation of Israel able to sing some of these words out loud? When you read the Psalms, you see words of vengeance, you see words of anger and bitterness and frustration, while at the same time, often you read words of great hope and great character uh, that is found in not only uh, the, the character of God, but of His plans. And so when you read the Psalms, you see the highs and lows of all of that. Even in the verses that we read, we get a chance to see the internal conversation that's happening in the writer being cast down having memories of the way things used to be and wanting to be able to perhaps go back to that point, questioning God and saying, why is it that I'm going through this and why would it seem that I'm just in such darkness and loneliness? Where are you? Have you forgotten about me? And then coming to once again say the refrain that is found throughout not only Psalm 42 but Psalm 43, why are you so cast down? Why, why, oh my soul, are you so cast down? Hope in God, for I will again praise Him, 
my rock and my redeemer. Why are you so cast down, O my soul? Why? The scripture calls us to ask that question when we walk through difficulty as well. Because when we find ourselves in the pity party, when we find ourselves in heartache, that's a process we all walk through. But at the same time, we're called to say, you know what? I don't have any reason to feel this way. Have you forgotten the hope that you have in God? You're again going to praise him. You're again going to see the goodness of who he is. You're going to again see that he's carrying you through what you're walking through. Don't let go. Don't be cast down. Paul, in talking about the topic of pain being part of the process, he says in verse 20, it's my eager expectation and hope that I'll not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Even when there's folks that attack me, even when there's jail that I have to, you know, prison that I've got to get through, even when I don't know where my next meal is coming from, I don't know if ultimately I'm going to be executed. I don't know this. I don't know that. You know what? I don't need to be ashamed. And if we're careful to read verse 20, we will see that Paul is not saying, I don't need to be ashamed because my character and my accomplishments are so great. That's not what he's saying. I don't believe in verse 20, as he says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I'll not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. I don't believe that what he's saying is that I'm confident that always, a scary word to use, Christ is going to be honored in my body because I'm going to make all the right choices and I'm going to do all the right things, even on the worst days. I don't think that's what the Apostle Paul's saying. What I believe he is carrying through is what he's already written, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so the hope of you and I being not ashamed doesn't have to do ultimately with the perfection of our behavior because we can't be perfect. You know what it's based in? Christ. Before, during, after, it's all Jesus. And so the hope that I cannot be ashamed is that now in my body and further, Jesus is working with the work that he started, the work that he's doing, the work that he's bringing to completion. And so because Jesus is at work, because Jesus is accomplishing the things that only he can accomplish, I need not be ashamed because when the father looks at me, he sees his son. And so Jesus is where my hope is. All the while that Jesus is shaping me and bringing not only my behavior, my, my sanctification, my character of who I am in Christ, and all of that, ultimately my hope is not what I can do, it's in Jesus. And so I need not be ashamed. But pain is part of the process that God uses to accomplish this purpose. Paul goes on in verse 21, he says, not only will Christ be honored by my body, whether by life or by death, but the most well-known passage or verse in this passage, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Number four, and lastly this morning, when we belong to Jesus, death is life and life is Christ. When we belong to Jesus, death is life and life is Christ. Now, for many of us who perhaps are used to that verse standing alone, if we're not careful, we will only read into that that my life is Christ's 
purposes and his mission. And so for me to live as Christ means I want to be about Jesus's purposes and his mission. That certainly is an important part of it, but unfortunately that is not uh, sufficient in and of itself to say my life simply is the purposes of Jesus Christ. No, Paul goes on to say in the midst of this same thread of logic and context that not only is life Christ, life is Christ because of what Jesus has started, what he is doing, what he's continuing. And so for me to live in Christ is to recognize that Jesus is in control more than I am. And so I can trust him because he's larger than my failure. He's larger than my inadequacies. He's larger than my circumstances. For me to live is Christ because Jesus is the one doing the work and not me. And to die, even to die, is gain. Now, Paul doesn't say that to die is gain because the fishing in heaven is just awesome. And he doesn't say to die is gain because ultimately uh, the place where he's going to be living is lavish materially. He doesn't even say that I can't wait, you know, to go to heaven because the food is just going to be incredible and I've been really hungry here in prison. He doesn't do that. This is what he says in verse uh, uh, 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. The hope of heaven more than anything else is the presence of Jesus with his people. The hope of heaven greater than whatever the accommodations are gonna be Whatever the food is going to be, whatever it's going to be like to not experience pain and not experience grief and suffering, whatever it's going to be like even to see loved ones again who have gone to be with the Lord, all of those things, wonderful things. But the primary hope of heaven for those in Christ is being with their Savior, with Him. And so Paul writes on that same theme. To live is Christ and to depart is to be with Christ. Death is not something to fear. And so Paul closes the passage then in verse 25 saying, convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul says, you know, I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know what it's going to be like. I'm facing this set of challenges. We don't know where some of that is leading. I don't know why certain people are trying to, you know, say this or do this. And so all of that is beyond my control. And he says to the Philippian church, one thing I do know is because of God entrusting you to me, my calling is for you right now to love you, to serve you, to teach you, to lead you, to help your discipleship walk with the Lord Jesus and toward heaven. That's where God's called me. So I'm going to focus on where I know God's leading me. I'm going to focus on the places and the blessings that he's given me. And in that, I'm going to keep moving forward and see where he leads. You know, the same hope that Paul had is the hope that each of us have. There's a number of things we can't control, a number of things we don't understand. But when we look at our own life and we say, Lord, where are you calling me right now, even if it's something small? Lord, where are you leading me and what are you you positioning my life in order to be able to do? Lord, may I be faithful in that and leave all the rest to you. There's a lady named Florence Chadwick who became famous for swimming the English Channel between England and France many years ago. 
And she set out to do something that was actually going to be more difficult to do, though it probably wasn't as notable. And she was going to swim from what I believe is called Catalina Island off the California coast and swim 26 miles to uh, the shore of California itself. Now, I've not been to California, but I've been told that the water is pretty cold out there. And so she was going to swim 26 miles and be accompanied by several boats who were going to help her in that process. Sure enough, she set off and she began to swim and she swam for mile after mile after mile until she came to a place where the fog began to close in. I've heard that's another thing that happens quite a bit on the West Coast. And so fog began to surround the boat. It began to surround her to where she couldn't see anymore where she was going. And she kept swimming, but she began to notice the pain that was in her arms. And she began to notice the, the, the tiredness in her chest. And she began to just see how her body seemed to be giving out. And as she looked up, all she could see was fog for not only minute after minute, but hour after hour. And finally, she called to the men in the boat and she said, I can't go any further. I just don't have anything left. And they said, well, if you're sure, you know, go ahead and get out. And sure enough, they got her in the boat and they came to realize not long after that, she'd only been a half mile away from the California shore whenever she stopped swimming. She was able to give it another attempt not too much longer after that, and she began to swim once again from Catalina Island. She was accompanied by these boats, and just as it had done before, and even in a heavier way than before, a fog began to roll in. And as she was swimming, she got caught up in that fog, and sure enough, she could no longer see where she was going. And she continued to, to swim bit after bit, mile after mile, till finally she reached the western shore of the state of California and stepped up onto sandy ground and realized that she had accomplished exactly what she wanted. A reporter came to her and began to interview her and to say, what made it different this time from last time? I know you got so close this time, heavy fog rolled in again. What in the world made it different this time? And she said, well, after last time, one of the things that I, I found really important to do was to visualize the California coast in my mind. And so I got a real good visual picture of that. Every time I would look up and only see fog, I would see the California coastline in mind. And as long as that vision was set before me, I could keep swimming and I I could keep swimming and I could keep swimming. Paul makes the statement to believers not only speaking about himself but to say to us in much the same way. In the ways that God has called his people, can you remember the goal? Can you remember where we're going? And can you remember who's with us all along the way? And because Jesus, who began a good work in us, will be faithful to bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, even when there's personal hurt even when there's difficult circumstances, even when there's challenges that you weren't anticipating, you know what? To live is Christ, and even death holds no threat for his children. Let's pray together. Father, today, in our hearts, and in those in this room who perhaps are carrying any number of different hurts, difficult circumstances, pain, whatever it may be, Lord, would the tender words of Jesus remind us that we can come to him who is gentle of heart. Lord, could we take his yoke upon us and for anything that we need to lay down at the foot of the cross today, would you help us to do so? Trusting and knowing that he hasn't walked away and when we belong to him, he's always with us. But difficulty and pain and hurt 
Sometimes they're part of the process of deliverance that he's accomplishing in our own hearts and lives. So Lord, would you help us to trust him? Father, if there's any here today who just need to trust in the gentle, powerful message of Jesus, that because of his death and his resurrection, we can have newness of life and life for eternity. Lord, would you challenge each one of our hearts today however you see fit. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.